1: I'm Fraser Myers, and with me today are Spike Deputy Editor and host of The Last Orders podcast, Tom Slater. Hello, hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. This week on the show, Brexit, sexual harassment, and Bernie Sanders.
2: If the House, having rejected
1: leaving with the deal negotiated with the EU, then rejects leaving on the 29th of March without a withdrawal agreement and future framework... The government will, on the 14th of March, bring forward a motion on whether Parliament wants to seek a short, limited extension to Article 15. Labour will support or put forward an amendment in favour of a public vote. This week, MPs voted overwhelmingly for safeguards against the possibility of a no-deal Brexit. The Cooper Bowles Amendment will allow MPs a vote on whether to extend the Article 50 negotiating period if Theresa May's deal fails to make it through the House of Commons. Meanwhile, the Labour Party, following a defeat of its proposed Brexit deal, is now backing a second EU referendum. Tom, do you want to tell us a bit more about what's been going on in Parliament this week?
0: Well, so everything kind of came to a head this week, but probably not in the order in which we thought it was going to happen. I think it's fair to say the two big questions hanging over the process going into this week were, on the one hand, would Theresa May buckle and extend Article 50 to try and take, not necessarily just take no deal off the table, but at least change our exit date from 29th of March, as is currently the default, to push it back a little bit to play for more time. She came under intense pressure from her own cabinet, David Gork, Amber Rudd, Greg Clark in particular, having been in the papers at the weekend, effectively saying that they would defy her and vote for an extension if her deal was defeated. Uh, And the other question was what the Labour Party is going to do, because it's clear that their own Brexit offer, such as it is, doesn't have a majority in Parliament. On paper, they should be moving towards a second referendum, but particularly Corbyn seemed to be very um, hesitant to move towards that. First of all, Monday night, you had the Labour Party come out and say that it would move towards supporting a second referendum if its proposed deal fell on Wednesday, which it almost undoubtedly would. And it eventually did and then the following day you had Theresa May announce that if her deal failed to pass then she would allow parliament to vote on whether or not it wanted to pursue no deal and if it didn't then to vote for some form of extension basically kind of kicking the legs out from under the Cooper Letwin amendment um, and effectively creating some sort of guarantee on its own terms. Cooper Letwin basically got refashioned and passed but as a kind of reaffirmation of what Theresa May had said and then Labour's motion on its own deal failed and therefore it is now at least in theory committed to a second referendum on Brexit. So things have really come to ahead here. There's still a lot of discussion about what all of this means. Some people on both the Remain and the Brexiteer side suggest that some sort of short extension on Article 50 might not take no deal off the table entirely, especially if it only goes up to just before the European Parliament comes back. That that would effectively just move the cliff edge. There's some debate about that. There's some debate about whether or not Labour's policy on the second referendum really means anything given the fact that there isn't a majority. It seems at the moment in Parliament for a second referendum that even die-hard Remainers, many of them are sufficiently spooked but no matter what outside of those slightly more technical and tactical discussions it's very clear which way the wind is blowing and it does seem like at the moment the people who do have the upper hand are the eu who either want a far softer deal than we currently have or for us to just stay back in and most of parliament who frankly want basically the same thing and i think it would be naive to suggest that anything else is likely to come of this week's events
1: I mean, one big disappointment has been the sort of slow collapse and folding of um, the European research group, the ERG, the supposedly hardline brexit Tories, because they seem to now be sort of slowly coalescing around May's deal, which, as we know, is just a sort of, sort of Brexit in name only. I mean, you have Boris Johnson, who, because of his leadership ambitions being his main focus... Doesn't want to be the person that, um, you know, splits the Tory party by openly pursuing, um, a no deal option at this point. And even Jacob Rees Mogg has announced, you know, that he would accept a legally binding appendix to the backstop as a possible solution. So in other words, even the supposed hardliners are willing to be won over to abandoning Brexit by either EU legalese or just party expediency. So, yeah, not looking good for Brexit.
2: <laughs> no, certainly not. I mean, Jake and Ruth Mogg even said, I don't care what kind of wording it is. I don't care what form it comes in, just as long as you have some assurance that the backstop isn't going to stop us from unilaterally Uh, leaving then and you know that's like a it's a real cop-out because Mm. it's like saying that everything is fine with Theresa May's approach and her promise of Brexit and her deal other than you know just a few tweaking words which can really come in any form I mean that it's not just a case of even just the backstop there's a huge amount wrong with her deal I mean it's fascinating that there's no majority in parliament for anything other than stopping Brexit, other than (laughs) stopping a no deal. Well, there's a widespread understanding that people don't want this to continue, whether it be, you know, scare reports about businesses saying they're in limbo, whether it be just voters, you know, expressing distress, saying why can't they just get on with this? So the idea of a delay that that seems to be very popular in parliament is not popular at all outside of the House (laughs) of Commons. I mean, Mm -hmm. people genuinely do want the government to just get on with this. The idea of taking no deal off the table completely uh, and either stopping that through a delay and extension to Article 50 or you know, even as the amendment that got defeated by the SNP stopping it through any means or under any circumstances is a real travesty and shouldn't be forgotten that what that means is essentially taking Brexit hard Brexit, clean Brexit, whatever you want to call it, off the table. It means that the only options left are a Remainer-influenced Brexit, which is not one in its entirety. And that is simply undemocratic.
0: I think the other thing is that we we shouldn't get too caught up as well in the technicalities and the arguments that are being made to not recognise the broader dynamics that are Mm. going on and what this spells actually for the political parties and how it's kind of true essence has been revealed throughout this process. So the, the Labour u-turn on the second referendum this week i think is very very significant in that regard because this has been what all of the commentary have been pushing for because this is what the people's vote crew have been pinning all their hopes on you kind of forget how significant it actually is the fact that the party of the people so-called is now telling the people that they need to vote again that the party that's supposed to represent workers is defying millions of workers who voted in the european referendum to leave the european union um, basically, to keep happy an urban middle class who are just deeply unaccustomed to not getting their way. That's really what is going on. I think there's an open question about whether or not Labour's Brexit stance will hurt it electorally. It's not good to make predictions these days, but Richard Johnson, University of Lancaster, has crunched the numbers on this and he points out 61% of Labour constituencies voted leave, as they currently are. Um, Out of the seats they need to take off the Tories, 78% of them voted leave. And out of the seats of theirs which are most vulnerable, 72% of them voted leave. So these are not encouraging numbers. But even if it does manage to carry on in some form, even if it does manage to just capture and become on some level the party of remain, the whole point of Labour, which is to, you know, put supposedly to put more power in ordinary people's hands, has been entirely inverted by this process. It's been revealed how little claim it has to do that. And whilst for a very long time we've said on spite that Labour and the Tories work and the zombie parties who for a long time had failed to actually be what they were set up to be. They're just kind of stumbling on without actually much mission. That's never been more clear this week, particularly in the case of Labour I don't think
1: what's most incredible as well, I mean we we've talked about the split a lot more last week. Um, you know the MPs defecting to this independent group is that Labour has actually split up into two parties that are opposed to Mm. Brexit. You know, you'd, you'd want at least one rump of them to, <laughs> yeah. to, to defend something of the democratic vote that we had in 2016.
2: And Corbyn's supposed, you know, Corbyn, the principled politician, the man that's meant to stick to his <laughs> guns, we've said time and again that on the issue of the EU, he's proven not to be principled. But I mean, there's moments when you think the Internet's just such a fantastic resource. There was this video that got pulled up and shared on Twitter of him addressing a, a no voters at an anti-Lisbon Treaty rally in Ireland in 2009. Mm when he's sort of kind of you know sniggering and saying oh don't recycle your posters because I think they're just going to make you vote again and again and again until they get their answer and you think what (laughs) what's changed in 10 years from your position then which was anti-EU and completely astute in seeing what EU and political establishments do to get their way and now when you are on their side so it's worth remembering that when the chips are down Corbyn does not prove himself to be the man that he says he is he has no principles in relation to this
1: I'd just like to take a really quick moment to say a massive thank you to everyone who's been donating to Spiked. I know many of you who listen to this podcast have donated to us in the past or make monthly donations, and it's thanks to your contributions and generosity that we can keep going and growing. Spiked has some very exciting plans for the year ahead with our podcasts, and we need the help of listeners and readers like you to make them happen. So if you haven't before, please do consider making a donation, or even better, setting up a monthly donation. It's really easy to do. Just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. Thank you. Now, back to the show. A new report claims that more than half of UK university students are being exposed to unwanted sexual behaviours. Student unions have long claimed that there is a so-called rape culture on British campuses. But Ella, uh, what's the truth behind this latest survey?
2: Well, as always with these kind of surveys, it isn't necessarily what it seems. I think if you genuinely believed that half of students at UK universities were suffering from some kind of, you know, terrible sexual assault or harassment, uh, you would expect there to be marches in the street because that's a very big number. Obviously, the fact is this survey asked about unwanted sexual behavior, Mm. which you try and tell me what that means. I mean, anyone could come up with a hundred different descriptions of that, but it included things like inappropriate touching, explicit messages, being catcalled, and then also being followed or being forced into sex or sexual acts. Very serious things alongside uh, arguably quite trivial issues. And some of the stats that they came up with, uh, again, when you look at really what they are actually telling you, it doesn't tell you very much. So it said that 56% experienced unwanted sexual behavior, but only 15% realized that this counted as harassment. Now, that is such a fascinating statement, if you break it down mm. uh, because it, it said in another place, only fifteen percent believed that they were a victim, well, of course, believing that you 're a victim is completely subjective, whether or not the behavior or uh, the attention that you've received is criminal harassment or assault that 's a completely different subject. It also stated that thirty percent of all the incidents that it uh, asked people about took place on campus that 's a that means that 70% of them happened what, out in the town or somewhere that's nothing to do with the universities. Mm. Uh, and buried right at the end of all of the press releases was the brilliant stat that 90% of all students surveyed felt confident to say no to unwanted sexual advances. So what's the problem? What is the problem? If, nine, if the vast majority of students feel confident in asserting themselves in sexual relationships, what is the issue?
1: That, I mean, that's fascinating. And, and, um, you know, one of the disparities just of the statistics you read that, you know, raised, um, alarm bells in my mind, you know, 15% of people think they're a victim, but the assumption is that actually the 85% are wrong, you know, that they are victims and they don't even realize it, that these people don't know their own minds. And then again, you know, eight, only 8% are reporting mm. as if 100% should be reporting every single thing that happens to them. You do have to take a step back and and think, do the people, you know, who organise and orchestrate these surveys, have they ever had any kind of relationships or or, or sex life? Because, you know, how on earth do you know an advance is going to be unwanted before you make it? Mm. Unless it's obviously pervy and weird and lewd and disgusting. But
0: without wanting to kind of impute motives, they are fundamentally interested in inflating the statistics. That's just the nature of these things, really unfortunately and you even see things creep into the mix like i can't remember the precise statistic maybe you do ella but about the number of um women respondents who didn't realize that being drunk meant that they couldn't consent
2: it says Mm. uh, it said only only 52 percent of people realize that
0: (laughs) That completely puts the cat amongst pigeons in terms of what it is we're supposed to actually be talking about yeah. here. Um, now, it's really important that people are sceptical of these kinds of statistics, not because, you know, just for the hell of it, but because you can have very serious consequences to dodgy statistics and they end up with bad policies, bad mm-hmm. outcomes, bad ideas. And I think even the fact that currently we're talking about over 50% of people experiencing some form of sexual assault or sexual harassment, and talking about kind of dodgy statistics, I remember a couple of years ago looking into what the NUS was then claiming in the Hidden Marks report that one in seven people were subject to some sort of physical and sexual assault. They had to clump those two things together in order to get to that statistic. And it actually turned out that the biggest category within that was, was hair pulling and, and slapping. It didn't even uh, stipulate who was committing those kinds of offences. And it's a really important, but sometimes difficult point to make, which is that a real barrier it feels like to women's freedom, particularly in relation to the campus discussion today, is not the fact that they have freedom, not the fact that they're allowed to kind of run around and things might happen. It's the fact that they're being terrified, or at least people are trying to terrify yeah. them, um, into suggesting that they're far more at threat than they actually are, and that can have real consequences. We've seen in America the kind of response to the kind of campus sexual assault hysteria in the form of these kangaroo courts, um, creating you know. Both very unjust and sometimes very bizarre situations, where um, students are being expelled for no good reason. Um, we've seen that beginning to be exported over here recently. Particularly, University of Cambridge have been agitating for the burden of proof in campus sexual assault proceedings to be lowered um, to the balance of probabilities. It's currently beyond reasonable doubt. Even conceding the idea that it's the role of a of a you know a campus uh, board appointed of a couple of lecturers and administrators to actually rule on, on a crime as serious as sexual assault. So. Mm. The, these statistics really do need to be called more into question because there's obviously things wrong with them, and if you just take them wholesale, you're going to end up going down some really dark paths. Frankly,
1: it's it's that kind of disparity between the um, the seriousness of the allegation and and the um, and the proposed response that always makes me question: Are we really talking about rape? Are we really talking about sexual assault? Because, as you say, you know, if we were talking about serious crimes, is expulsion an appropriate punishment? I don't think it is. You know, Just keep them off campus. Keep, the yeah, is that, that is basically. that really all you're going to do if someone was sexually assaulted? No. So clearly we know we're talking about something something else, something a bit less serious maybe.
2: But on also on a broader political point for what this means for women, I think this is why I'm so dedicated to... Trashing these kind of stats, uh not because, as often gets leveled at you that you're sort of in some, unsympathetic towards mm. people 's experiences mm. of you know sexual harassment, sexual assault, or even when men piss women off like i'm not i'm not saying that we should have to put up with that, but this kind of fear mongering completely strips women of their agency i mean it's worth going back to that stat about alcohol. Because essentially what that... And I rang up a barrister friend of mine and said, is there anything in the law that says that if you are drunk that you cannot consent? He said, Mm. no, there's no hard rule on it. Obviously, juries can decide that if someone is incapacitated and paralytic, Mm -hmm. then it's quite clear that you're raping them if you're having sex with them and they can't say yes or they can't participate. But the idea that if you're drunk, you can't consent, well, that Mm. means that once a woman consumes alcohol, whether that's one pint or five she is then reduced to the status of a child. She's mm. absolutely no control over her decisions, over her body and that's what a lot of these stats are saying is that men are predators and women are the victims and women are completely incapable of dealing this, with this in any way other than seeing themselves as a victim and reporting it to the police. I mean that means that we are back to the kind of 19th century view of women as having to be chaperoned around because we mm. can't take control of our own lives. That, I don't think people realise how extremely reactionary that is and on the basis of sexual freedom it was the brooke charity who did this survey Uh, helen brooke was someone who set up the charity back in the 60s in order to teach unmarried women about the about you know pregnancy about contraception about how they could manage their sexual lives in a more free way i think it's really telling that now fast forward to 2019 it's using these kind of stats to terrify women about their sexual freedom
1: Hi there, I hope you're enjoying the Spike podcast so far, and if you are, why not help us spread the word by giving us a rating and a review with your podcast provider. It won't take long, but it will make a huge difference for us, so we'd be massively grateful if you could take a tiny bit of your time to give us a rating and a review. Right, now back to the show. Bernie Sanders has thrown his hat in the ring for the 2020 presidential race. His presidential bid has already raised $10 million, outraising a crowded field of Democratic rivals. A lifelong outsider is now the front-runner. Tom, what are your thoughts?
0: Well, I think the most fascinating thing with Bernie is the excitement that he generates amongst sections of the public, sections of the Democratic base, certainly, and the disdain that he's greeted mm-hmm. with by the Democratic establishment. It's absolutely fascinating, the kind of really, largely speaking, kind of identity politics-focused backlash to him which is so incredibly petty so when he announced on um, vermont public radio that he was going to run um, and he kind of came up against this question that was leveled at him after 2016 about you know really is an old white guy effectively the person mm. <laughs> who should be leading this movement forward particularly in, with trump in the white house now he effectively repeated the Martin Luther King point we've got to get beyond talking about people in terms of you know their immutable characteristics this is about the ideas and what they stand for and once again he was pilloried for saying this Rich yeah. Lowry wrote a good piece about this was we talking and he quoted some people Stephen Colbert snarking yes like Dr King I have a dream a dream where this diverse nation can come together and be led by an old white guy various <laughs> people saying that it was effectively just bad taste in the current climate to suggest that we should be trying to move beyond race, and this is something that has really been interesting in the battle bec- between the kind of slightly more populist, supposedly democratic socialists, although we might want to debate that nature of the kind of Sanders camp, and the democratic establishment, which whilst being thoroughly elite, whilst being mm. f- you know full of um, funding from some of the richest sections of America, has always used identity politics as a way to kind of try and beat down the left of the party, or at least yeah. has certainly been doing that in the last couple of years. The sad thing is that it seems like, Bernie has been capitulating to it Mm. a little bit. He put out, Michael Tracy wrote about this on Spike this week, he put out a kind of warning to the so-called Bernie bros, this kind of complete (laughs) invention of the sort of democratic establishment. Supposedly these blokes online who were shouting down women (laughs) because so (laughs) blinded by their love of of Bernie Sanders. He told them to calm it down. He's even admitted that, you know, he needs to run a slightly less kind of pale male and stale campaign. But I think the more he does that, the more he's going to switch off the people who he can reach and yeah. most of the other Democratic candidates can't, who are people who are actually pretty fed up with that kind of identity politics nonsense, frankly. Yeah. yeah, I
2: mean, in that interview with the Young Turks where he said that, you know, he said, oh, yeah, the campaign before was too white and too male-orientated. Mm. When they asked him, who are you thinking for you know, vice president? Uh, he said, well... I think we could look for somebody who's maybe not of the same gender as I am, and maybe somebody, and maybe somebody a couple of years younger than me. I mean, so it's like, but the, it, it's funny. But also, the problem is, alongside that, he's also doing the whole kind of, you know, uh, really going for Trump, saying that he wrote in the Guardian uh, this week that he's a bigger a liar, a fraud, a racist, a sexist, a xenophobe. So he's he's that's his stick that he he really goes for Trump. And I mean, the fact is that America is still really quite divided Mm, over Trump in many ways. And so echoing that kind of anti-Trump and anti-Trump voter rhetoric of sort of just labeling the bigot word onto anything that's related to him isn't going to win people over to him. I think part of the problem is that he does need to win or certainly the Democrats do need to win over Mm. um, those Trump voters. You're not going to do that by continuously uh, taking that line. Having said that, I mean, Trump has on several occasions proven to be uh, perhaps not an outright bigot, but certainly some of those things that Mm -hmm. uh, Sanders is calling him. I mean, the other problem is that Though he's had a lot of flack for being the kind of the white, male, pale, stale, whatever. I think that the things that he's putting forward aren't necessarily bad. I mean, his issues on his policies on healthcare are certainly very attractive. Uh, the issues of scrapping tuition-free fees is going to be popular among many people in America. But it's, it's largely seems to be still at the moment uh, subject to the kind of pie-in-the-sky criticisms in terms mm. of his continuously going on about democratic socialism. Mm. If you mention the S-word in America, it gets people's backs up. That doesn't mean that he should stop doing it.
1: Yeah, I mean, read the New York Times. They they said he was something like a (laughs) quasi-Marxist, relatively hard left. You know, these kinds of bizarre... Completely bizarre buzz phrases for a politician that would not look out of place in you know any mainstream European political party. He basically
0: wants to be wants America to be Sweden. That's yeah. basically what he wants to do. Kind of Swedish social democracy. It, it does speak to how narrow the political debate, particularly on economics, is hmm. in America. That you have that you know that that kind of there is no alternative is so writ large but what one of the things that is interesting kind of keeping on the economics thing and the kind of elite policies which have been pushed by both the democrats and the republicans for so long is how people like hillary clinton are, have been able to kind of pose as radical if anything more radical than their more economically populist colleagues Mm. by playing on identity politics and I think it does come back to a point that we've made many times which is identity politics can be a very convenient cover for real privilege banging Mm. on about privilege all day can be a very real cover (laughs) for not talking about real economic privileges and for how those things might be redressed none of this is to say that Bernie Sanders is necessarily you know this revolutionary who's going to make everything wonderful in America but nevertheless I think the Nature of the response to him tells you everything you need to know, not just about the narrowness of the debate, not just about how identity politics is frankly just an elite weapon at this point, um, but, and, but basically just how resistant a lot of the political establishment is to change, even to something as inoffensive as kind of Swedish social democracy.
1: Things have really, really ramped up in the sort of identity politics stakes. And one, um, one example just shows how, how crazy things have become is the Kamala Harris, who's a, a black woman, has now been questioned about her choice of husband who is who is white the insinuation being that she is not potentially black enough to be black i mean it's it, you know actually it's, it's it's not only that identity politics is a cover for you know elite policies and uh, as you're saying but it can actually lead to down some very dark roads you mm. know to a re-racializing of politics it's kind of a pork barrel politics of the 21st century in a way and 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 that's i think something that needs to be confronted head on Bernie is doing a good job of occasionally confronting these things, but he also looks as if he's conceding a bit to it too.
0: Well, I think he also does recognise on some level his, at least his most diehard supporters do come from the identity politics set. I remember when me and Nella were in the US during the primaries way back in 2016. And going to a Trump rally outside was an anti-Trump protest, but it was basically a pro-Bernie protest. <laughs> you could barely, the, the chants waxed and waned from <laughs> one to the other. And there was a lot of blue hair there, just to be real. And uh, he, I think he does recognize that whilst he can, there, he can appeal, I think, and I think this has been well established, to the kind of Obama, Obama, Trump voters, yeah. so those people in blue states. Who, um, despite voting democratic, their entire lives suddenly saw something in Trump and his populist economic message. But at the same time, he does owe a lot of his dynamism to the identity politics set, and that is yeah. going to be a tension. That I'm not sure if he can fully resolve, frankly.
1: And to the you know the democratic socialists of America, that that kind of grouping who we've discussed are you know actually quite affluent, university educated, yeah. not really representative of the workers that they. Claim to represent.
2: Mm. Remember one of the other front runners Elizabeth Warren, uh, talking about it back in January, talking about how terrible it was that her likability ratings uh, were down, and people even suggesting that it was sexist because she was seen <laughs> as cold and aloof in the same way that Clinton was. Uh, and so there's this tension where they're always playing kind of two games, which is one, say the right thing to the right kind of voters. Mm. Uh, back in 2016, when me and Tom were there, we also went to a Hillary Clinton rally, mm. which was in the, the hard... dampest thing I've ever it seen. It was the dampest one. thing, and it was the most awkward thing because it Mm. was so obvious that she was trying to kiss ass to black voters in this really crude and insulting kind of a way that hasn't necessarily gone away i think sanders is doing a lot of that you know in all his speeches one that he gave the cnn town hall one uh, earlier this week he starts off by saying we have to tackle the racism sexism homophobia Mm. blah 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 the list goes on in this country one of the things he had going for him was that he was sort of seen as the like the old socialist granddad you know Mm. wasn't too concerned about all of Mm. this but just wanted to get democratic socialism in place in america if he sticks to that as michael tracy says in spiked potentially he might succeed and i wouldn't mind seeing him succeed but if he continues going down this identity politics road he's just going to trip himself up because he isn't an identity (laughs) politics kind of guy
1: you've been listening to the spike podcast if you've enjoyed the show don't forget to give us a rating a review or even make a donation We'll be back next week, but for more Spike content every day, visit spiked-online.com.